the next couple of Sabbaths I will not be here. Uh, so next Sabbath, Melissa Broughton will, uh, will lead a study about the Sabbath and non-human suffering. Uh, and, I, and she will do it with a, uh, with a poetic angle, and I think it will be extremely worth our while. It's, it still seems quite difficult. It still seems quite an uphill struggle to get, uh, even in, in the Adventist uh, framework, to get non-human creation to be seen as beneficiaries of the Sabbath, to see, see that it extends to non-human creation. There is significant work to be done within our community on, on, on that point. So Melissa has, has, has given a lot of thought and heart to, to that subject, so it will be uh, very much worth our while. Uh, on Thanksgiving, uh, the class will not meet, and the following Sabbath, Brad Cole will lead out uh, on a topic that will be closely related to what I will be doing today. So, so and Brad, Brad, you should know. Does anyone of you not know Brad? You know Melissa. Melissa, just show your uh, hand. Melissa is teaching English at La Sierra University, and Brad, uh, let's just uh, identify Brad. Brad Cole is a, is a neurologist. Uh, he's the chief of neurology at the VA uh, hospital, and he is also the person who teaches neuroscience to the medical students here. He's very much appreciated as a teacher in, in that subject. And he also leads a Bible study every Thursday, where as many as 100 medical students come out to do a God in all 66 Bible study with Brad. So, so this community uh, has, uh, has a lot to be grateful for. And, and <coughs> Brad and Dorothy uh, are one of the, or among the reasons to be, to be grateful in this community. So, so I will uh, be in San Francisco next, or next weekend. Uh, I am going to the Society of Biblical Literature meetings, where I will be presenting two papers in the non-Adventist, in the in the sort of among the uh, all the uh, sco the scholarly communities. One one uh, one is a topic I have been invited to speak on the subject of the Sabbath and war. To fight or not to fight on the Sabbath is my topic, and I I will probably share on that topic here at some point. And my other topic is uh, I have tried for years to get a chance to speak to the Gospel of John sessions. Because in the Gospel of John, there are many very established scholars. It's not easy to get in there. But this year, they have accepted a proposal where I will talk about the, the priority of theology over Christology in the Gospel of John. You, you would know that melody, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, that's not my text. My text is John 10, 37 and 38. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, believe the works, even if you don't believe in me. That's my text. And I'm still working on that. I'm deeply immersed in that, so I can barely keep the Sabbath this weekend because, because I'm, <coughs> I'm just under the thrall of that text. <laughs> I'm in the thrall of that text, you might say. So, so that I hope that, that we will see this, you know, this is a sort of, uh, you know, coll collaborative venture. So, so I am part of it. Melissa, Brad, others here, uh, you uh, have spoken up and, 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 and we are sort of doing this in, interactively and, and trying to, to move the ball forward in our own lives and, and in our sort of communal, communal experience. So, so I'm uh, hopeful that we will, we will uh, 
honor, honor their, their hard work and preparation and, and participate when, when they, they will be here. So I, I, can, I can post it. And if, so, if some of you are not on our mailing list and would like to be on the mailing list, uh, I will put a piece of paper here and you can sign, sign your email address afterwards. After, cause we, we, uh, since we have some Sabbaths when we don't meet, it is nice to, to warn you and, and not uh, sort of de be a demoralizing factor in your life if you should come, come here and there is nothing. So. Okay, I think that was uh, sort of items of business, but uh, it's, it's very exciting, very interesting, and a great learning experience to go to SBL meetings. There are you know, thousands and thousands of people, 8,000 people maybe, coming from all over the world. And, and uh, I have learned a lot from others, and I have appreciated the, the opportunities I have had to share, and I, I share as a person, in some way speaking, from, my, my theolo from within my theological uh, context so so that's that's uh, that's i think quite uh, quite uh, important that we do that from time to time <laughs> okay today's topic i have called it the sabbath and the world plot and uh, or you notice i have dropped the the article today i have uh, it's sabbath and world plot i'm experimenting with with uh, uh, dropping the article to take a little bit of the itness out of the Sabbath. Not that I want to personify it, I, I don't. But in the Jewish, term, Jewish terminology, they do not talk about the Sabbath. They talk about Shabbat, Sabbath, without the article. And in some ways, I think that that in some ways gives the Sabbath a little more prestige. It takes away the itness of it by removing the article. So I'm, I'm, I'm experimenting with that. If you find that objectionable, <laughs> the Sabbath and the world plot. <laughs> but <clears throat> just uh, I've done it on a few of these slides, Sabbath and the world plot, uh, Shabbat and the world plot then. So, so far in our study of this topic, and we haven't done, been at it uh, very much, we have only looked at the text in Genesis. And here is what we saw in Genesis, in the text in Genesis 2, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to, to 3, that there is in that story a, a point of intent and actualization. God intended something, and he made it happen. Is that, didn't we agree on that? There is intent and there is something becoming actualized. What God meant to be, actually came to be. So that's, that pair is, 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 is warranted. Then there is the element of appraisal. Appraisal and delight. Now you can take this down again if you, if you, thought, if you think we're overselling it. Uh, you know, this is the time to correct it. But there was appraisal. God saw that it was good. And we even uh, did a little side glance to a text in Proverbs where the goodness also has a, con has a sort of connotation of delight. So there is appraisal and there is delight. And it's all creation stories, still only in creation. Then there is the scope of, there is universality and inclusion. The God of the Sabbath, the God of the creation story is the God of the God of everything, everything. 
there is universality. The God, uh, the God of the Sabbath is not the God of those people or those people or, you know, God bless America, uh, God bless Afghanistan. You know, the God of, 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 of the Sabbath is the God of all and the God of all creation. So there is universality and inclusion and non-human creation is also included in the blessing of the Sabbath because God's first blessing uh, in the creation story was a blessing on non-human creation. Right or wrong? It was. Genesis one twenty-two, And then there is the notion of presence and participation, that the God of the Sabbath is present in creation, and he intends to participate with creation. He puts himself inside, you know, the human story from the very beginning. He plants his flag inside of human reality, as it were, were and intends to, to be part of that. There is also the notion of, of plenitude and blessing, that fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So there is, and, and everyone is to benefit. That's what plenitude mean, means. Plenitude means that there is benefit for everybody, and certainly blessing then also for every, everybody. And then the Sabbath seems already in its initial configuration, not just to be looking back as memory, but it also seems to be looking forward as promise. So you have the, the sort of bookending there of the whole story. You have memory and you have promise, all of those in the Sabbath. Now, how is that for a beginning? Those six points, those six pairs, 12 big words, huge words, and all positive words. There is nothing negative here. Show me the negative part on this list. What, do, what don't you like? What is negative here? Intent? I mean, well, the, we're going to get to, you see, the, you see on, the, on the other first six here, it is this and that, this and that, this and that. And then on the seventh point, I'm putting in a little bit of attention. Gift versus obligation. Because obligation, if it is that, it could be a negative. You know, maybe that would be, so maybe something negative is coming up here. But, but so far, these first, these seem all to be positive, and I think I just think we could we could do a, a chapter on each of those and have quite a quite a feast. <laughs> yes, and then and, uh, let's do the question. Well, I have two. The first on four, uh, where presence and participation. Are you suggesting that by God entering human reality, was His participation in human reality different at a different level than His participation in um, whatever reality existed prior before creation in terms of dealing with the angels or whatever other beings existed is somehow his relationship to humans um, not only a, a different in kind quality degree okay. well that's a great great and interesting question you know is, the, is God is the Sabbath does the Sabbath mean that God is privileging the, the divine human relationship you know uh, in, uh, to the at the you know somewhat expense of you know others or is there a sort of privileging of the divine human relationship well I think the answer is yes to that but I could not prove that at this stage of the story. I, could, I, I think I can prove it at the end of the story. In the book of Revelation, God, the dwelling of God is with human beings, and he shall dwell with them. 
So, you know, there is a privileging of the human relationship in some ways at the end of the story. Now, I think that is implicit at the beginning of the story, that the Sabbath is kind of the, the, the seed thought for a privileging of the divine human relationship, but it isn't, you know, I can't, you know, you, you, you need to, we need to ask for help and see if others want to weigh in on that. But uh, what's the other question? Are you suggesting that there was a vulnerability to God that... that creating humans where the earth in general could satisfy? That, that, that there is some kind of need in God that makes him do it? Is that what you're saying? There are vulnerabil- what do you mean by vulnerability? Yes, vulner- a vulnerability that um, that humans are prompted him to create uh, this world in humans. Well, why, why, are you, why are you using the word vulnerability? I, I, I'm not saying that that's a bad word, but it's a very interesting wor- word, but it's quite a leading, a leading word because, you know, is, is there a vulnerability on God that lies behind God creating human beings? Well, because if he entered into a relationship, I think because our picture of God is that um, we need him, but he doesn't need us. Okay, that way. Okay. Right. Okay. I see now. All right. So there is a kind of reciprocity of a mutuality of needs. There was never any doubt that we needed God. You know, could it be that God needed us? You know, would you, I mean, that's, you know, let's just say those are questions worth asking. Let's not try to answer them at this point. <laughs> hold, hold, hold it. <laughs> yeah, okay. On number six, I understand the memory, but where in the verse you suggest promise? Where in the creation story are we getting a sense of promise? Well, where do we get a sense of promise? It's quite subtle. It's quite subtle, and I, and I am indebted to others for that thought. Uh, the creation story says that it was good. It isn't good anymore. So some Jewish readings of this text will say that that the Sabbath, you know, in some ways is coming comes into an existence, comes comes into existence in awareness of something that will be lost or has been lost. So there is a the sort of commitment of blessing of plenitude, and so on. There is an awareness. There is an awareness where the story is headed. You know, that's that's. Uh, I I have just barely mentioned it in the book, but uh, I think uh, that 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 is a a point where where we need to to work more on that point. But I I think it is corroborated eventually. The Sabbath, as you move through the Old Testament, the it tilts away from memory. And more and more toward promise, but that's you know is that there in the beginning? I'm I'm contending that it is. Yeah, Ed. I love the idea that this is all so positive, and you have these twelve words here that are so full of uh, meaning and, and grab your heart because it's it, it goes along with the title of your book, the lost meaning of the seventh day. And I, I just I'm saddened by by associating with so many of my friends and compatriots that have lost that meaning, and they see the Sabbath as something so different. Uh, and the, the best example is the Bible teacher from my, my kids. Um, and it just, uh, it's just so sad to see all of that lost when you bring out the beauty of the Sabbath. But, 
But there might be some reasons. There are some people who were uh, to whom the Sabbath has lost its luster. There might be reasons for that. Reasons that 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 where there needs to be some sort of sort of community accounting and, and accountability or responsibility. Because maybe maybe there has been a Sabbath practice that was quite negative. Maybe there has been a Sabbath theology that, in many ways, was unsustainable. You know, maybe one has, a, you know, put these things in a paradigm, and that's what I wish to explore this morning, where where this was a losing proposition. It won't go anywhere. You know, but I don't think. I'm I'm just wishing to to sort of be a little assertive here. I do not think that we are claiming more on behalf of the Sabbath. You know, then the text in Genesis, the sort of launching of the Sabbath in the biblical story, then that launching actually, uh, you know, there is warrant for for all of those claims. So what happened? Something terrible happened, of course, and that's what we wish to explore. Uh, So was there another? Yeah, go ahead. It seems to me that the promise part represents an anchor, God knowing what was going to come. The Sabbath says it isn't going to be lost. So the promise is the promise that what God intended will yet occur. If God could not have done it. God could not have made that kind of investment in the Sabbath if it was going to be all, you know, shortly come to grief, you know, that the whole thing would be lost. So I, it, it, I think the notion of promise is quite sustainable, and, and, and your, your point is, is, is well taken. We have some other hands. I don't get to say anything today. <laughs> it's all right. Let's talk. I just wanted to explore the, the gift versus obligation. Yeah. And... So, tell me a little bit more about the verses, and do you see any obligation at all in verses? Well, that's that's good. Thank you for the question. That's our topic. I want to discuss the gift versus obligation today. That's our that's our point. That we want to sharpen uh, sharpen the things. Uh, I think we have a hand here. It uh, seems to me that the, the command to be fruitful and multiply sort of a promise of more enjoyable things to come. It's sort of a, this isn't all there is. There's going to be society and, and you're going to take part in a creative sort of process. Um, it just seems to me that's a bit of a promise there. Yeah, uh, that's good, that, and that that's also within this notion of plenitude and a sort of that it rises, it will go to higher levels, it will get better. Now, could I have found ten pairs, you know, and more more words than these, more pairs? I could, but I had to stop at seven. You know, there are reasons for doing that in this context. <laughs> seven has a positive connotation; ten less positive. As you know, <laughs> well, there, there, there are there are th- things that might need to be circumscribed here, but but I think the notion of of a certain reciprocity in the sense that this is a relationship that is deeply meaningful to God, uh, you know, and and that the need aspect, you know, should one take that completely away, you know, from God? That you know, the classical picture of God is the immutable God, the God who needs nothing. You know the God without needs. That's the you know the Hellenistic picture of God, is a, is the God who is you know extremely transcendent and he needs nothing, you know, and he doesn't hurt because he doesn't you know feel it and all, you know things are just you know, 
good days or bad days, they're all the same. <laughs> anyway, I think we'll move on to a little more text now. And <clears throat> I, I, I thought I'd give you a, a, a language lesson just to, to see how much more fun one can have in other languages than English. Now, I will, I will grant that English has kind of won won the, the, the game, you know, the, the other languages are not, uh, not in the running anymore. English is the language of the world. But there are certain things you can do, and, and maybe Dorothy will correct me here, but uh, if it doesn't work in German, I'll do it in Norwegian. <laughs> now, the word Gebot <coughs> in German is, uh, means what? Commandment. Yeah. And then how do you make it into a, a gift? How do you make a bot into, into a, uh, an offer or a gift in German? It's very simple, isn't it? You just make it into an angebot. Isn't that correct? It's, it's, it works? Yeah. So I just like to, to see how short the distance can be in some languages between what? Between the obligation and the offer, between something that is utterly positive, meaning the gift, and something that might in some ways be saddled as a negative, the, the commandment, you know. But in German, it's just a little, you know, here, you just add this little thing here, uh, this prefix here, and then suddenly the commandment became something other than a commandment. So I'm just saying that even etymologically, even in some languages, the, the distance isn't great, and maybe there is some ways to draw them closer to sort of make the gift prevail in some ways over the commandment and make, in some ways, influence our percep perception of the commandment. Now, <clears throat> German is an important language. Norwegian is a very unimportant language, but we can do amazing things in, <laughs> in Norwegian, too, uh, with, uh, with uh, simple, simple things. It's even shorter. You can see the, the, how this is a Germanic language, because Gebot in German is in Norwegian bud. Just three, three letters. Bud is the same as commandment. So you have to have a big word in English, commandment. And we do it with three, <coughs> three letters. Very simple. It's bud. And then how do we make it into, into gift? Very, very easy. We just add uh, uh, this prefix here, here til bud. So now, now the commandment, bud, became uh, til bud, and it is gift, and it's completely different. But you see... See, the distance isn't great, or there is a sort of relationship even on the level of, of language between gift and commandment in some languages. Now, you lost that in English. I don't know. I tried all that, as hard as I could to find a way to, to uh, link, them, link them on the level of language or etymologically, but I wasn't able to do that. Maybe, maybe you can do it. I just couldn't resist it. I had to do this because <laughs> it struck me as quite fascinating. And it is on topic because, because there is, a, in some ways, a conflict between commandment and gift in, in our thinking. And, and uh, the Sabbath is, uh, is right in the middle of that conflict. So, <clears throat> here then uh, we begin uh, the story, uh, or we revisit the beginning of the story, so God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. Now, is this, is this uh, in the bracket of commanding, or is it in the co bracket of giving? 
Is, the, is this God as commander or God as giver who is featured here? I, try, I talked to my sister this morning. I always talk to my sister on Sabbath mornings in Norway. And uh, she was uh, this telling me about the problem that they had in her work situation. And, uh, and I, was telling, I was saying to her that uh, when something is self-evident, when something is self-evident, you have to leave it on the level of self-evidence. If you start explaining self-evidence, it will not be self-evident anymore. See, you can get yourself entangled in some things. I think it's self-evident here. Something is a gift here. If you have to s explain that, it might just you know, lose its luster in, in some ways. Anyway, let's go on. The body language of Sabbath in the Genesis story, is not a God who is withdrawing from creation. The body language of the Sabbath is a God who is engaging creation. The, the body language of Sabbath is not detachment, but engagement. Would you say that? That, that, could, that cannot be you know, overstating it in the least. I want to revisit this uh, objection. I, I told uh, uh, you last time, and those who weren't here, I'll just repeat it, that that uh, this um, uh, evangelical scholar, Ben Witherington, who teaches at Asbury Theological Seminary, he has, uh, he has uh, written a 12-page uh, uh, review of my Sabbath book uh, and, uh, and uh, says many things that are quite co commendatory about the book. And then he has a number of, of quite weighty objections to it. And here is uh, on his first uh, of... He has written seven, seven installments, and you have the, the web address there. Uh, and he says, Were Adam and Eve before the fall given a commandment to keep the seventh day holy? Nope. <laughs> you know. And, and uh, do you disagree? I want to discuss that, and I, I'm <laughs> I want to engage the theology of nope. Uh, uh, I'm going... I'm coining a new theological term here today, <laughs> and I want to engage this because, and, and I've even defined it. See what I'm defining nope as disdainful negation and emphatic no. You know, that's what nope means. Uh, <clears throat> you didn't know, I mean, nope is worse than no, isn't it? <laughs> I think it's worse than no. I think it's quite disdainful, isn't it? And anyway, that's how I hear it. So, were Adam and Eve before the fall given a commandment to keep the seventh day uh, holy? I, I tend to agree. I tend to agree that you could say no to that. And, uh, and, uh, but what does that mean? Uh, what, what sort of consequence is that? So what does the theology of no peer imply? It implies that if there had been a commandment, there would have been an obligation. Isn't that what he's kind of suggesting? And... There is no commandment, and therefore there is no obligation. At least you'd have to say that the commandment part would, would be quite implicit here. Uh, I, I would favor that there isn't, but we could, uh, we can, we, we could have uh, some give and take on that. It will not matter that much in the long run. Then the theology of Nope will also say there will be a command, but even with the command, there is no obligation because it doesn't apply to me. 
See, eventually there will be a command. Nobody denies that. There is a command. There is a fourth commandment about the Sabbath. But that commandment could be circumscribed either to say it doesn't apply to me or it is negative. It isn't really a positive. It never was. So you could, you know, in various ways find that. I think what he means to signal with the sort of theology of nope in the in the creation account is to take the prestige away from the Sabbath, to, to diminish the Sabbath as something, something of lesser value or, or, or maybe no value at all. And then I think I had one more. Theology of nope. <clears throat> and I hope you, when I bring this on your quiz, I, will, I hope you will be able to give the correct answer. Uh, theology of nope takes a miserly view of the Sabbath. It is a view to see the Sabbath in, in rather, you know, not as something that is really, really a, a big, a big project. In the Genesis story of the creation, the Sabbath is a big project. It didn't have to be that way. You know, it didn't have to be, it didn't have to end on the Sabbath. So it, the, in my, my reading, or the reading I would, would recommend and defend, is that in the Sabbath, God pulls out all the stops in some ways and puts, you know, lots of, puts himself into it, as it were. This is a, a big commitment. And I think the theology of nope, in some ways, is undermining and, 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 and sort of, uh, you know, pushing back there in a, in a way that is theologically uh, Ill, ill-advised. That's what I want to say. What you're seeing here is what this means to God, that God has not presented the Sabbath as what it should mean to us. He has only presented it as what it means to him. He has defined the Sabbath in the divine dimension. Dimension. He has not yet explicitly defined it in the human dimension. So you could still make a, 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 a sort of boundary there, uh, which I think it might be wise to, to do that a little, but, but it, is, it will not be a defeater either way, as we, uh, I hope we will see in a, in a moment. Now, there is a commandment in the, in the uh, first uh, three chapters of Genesis, in, se- in the second chapter of Genesis, and that there is a commandment, and it uh, runs like this, and the Lord God commanded, sawa, uh, that's the word for command, uh, the man, you may freely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it, you shall die. <clears throat> so, now the question is, you know, how do you do this one? I want us to do this one a little because now there is an unambiguous commandment here and, and, and that there will be no, no uh, doubt about that. How does this commandment relate to the, uh, the question of gift or obligation? You know, gift versus obligation. Now, <clears throat> then of course there is, there is scrutiny of the command in the garden. So this was the command. And here the command is coming under scrutiny uh, in Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than, other wild anim- uh, than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say, you shall not eat from any tree of the gar- in the garden? Now, there are many problems with the way uh, uh, the serpent repeats the divine command. So tell me a few of the problems. <laughs> So there is a divine command here, isn't there? God commanded, don't eat of that tree. That's unambiguous. So, you know, it's not all 
you know, we're not uh, sort of uh, living in uh, anarchy here. We're living in an ordered society where God has a command uh, about at least one thing here. So any comments on the text here? God commanded and the serpent said that God had done what? God had not commanded. God had only said. You know, that's one, one thing, isn't it? And then what does he do beyond that? So, so what's the difference between saying something God said and something God commanded? Is there any difference there? Are they equally weighty? Something God commands is more important than something God said to some extent, isn't it? And, and, and uh, many interpreters are, are quite uh, persuaded that, that the serpent, when he says that God has said it, rather than saying God has commanded it, is deliberately wishing to lessen you know, the imp- importance of what God had said or God had commanded. So there is a command, and then now you are uh, already beginning to do the theological footwork and saying, well, there is a commandment here, but there is a good purpose for it. You know, he really, he really means well. <laughs> that it could be a gift. Yeah, so you could construe it as a, as a gift. Uh, so anyway, what else does he do here? What, uh, what else? What about the content? You know, he... The characterization of the, of, the te- of the commandment is now it has been reduced from a commandment to a saying. But the content of the saying is what? The content, the content when the serpent says what God has said, what does he do? He misrepresents it. He makes it, you know, he, he, he uh, makes it much more restrictive, doesn't he? I mean, this, uh, you know, this is a text that, that will that will torment me all the days of my life because <laughs> I'm always returning to this text and I just cannot, cannot uh, move beyond its influence in my reading of, of the Bible. So here is what, uh, there is a beginning of the journey to nope. Uh, uh, excuse my, my terminology here, but already here there is that sense of belittling God's intent, you know, of somehow, somehow making uh, less of, of something that was intended to be positive, and then it is said, it, it's becoming a negative. Said, not commanded, means a lesser obligation. Would you agree with that? He's signaling that. And when he is saying, Had, has God said you cannot eat of any tree? Rather than saying, has God said you can eat of all the trees except one? There is a stricter obligation. It is a less important obligation, but a stricter obligation. So it's sort of coming at you from two, two sides, isn't it? Both of those things seem to be implied here. Here is James Barr. James Barr is one of the great linguists, biblical linguists of his generation. Uh, he, is, he died a, f- a few years ago. There was a mem- the, some of these people are memorialized at the Society of Biblical Literature meetings, and James Barr has been an extremely influential uh, person on, on, uh, on biblical languages, an extremely gifted linguist. Who, who uh, He was British. He taught first at Oxford for many years, and then he moved to the U.S., and I think he taught at, uh, uh, at Emory uh, toward the end of his life. In, in the U.K., you have to retire at 65, so many people who are still at the prime of their 
their scholarship, they come to the U.S. and work for another 30 years <laughs> or something. Uh, anyway, James Barr, he even learned Norwegian. There was an uh, Old, Te- uh, Old Testament theologian in Norway by the name of Sigmund Movinkel, who had written a book that in English has the title, He That Cometh. Uh, Uh, I think he wrote it in German initially, but uh, He That Cometh is an extremely influential book on on messianic expectation in the Old Testament. And James Barr was so enamored with this book that he decided to to learn Norwegian so he could read it. No, he must have written it in Norwegian initially because he taught himself Norwegian to read it in the... In the, in the original. Now here is what James Barr says, the sheer irrationality of the command not to eat of the tree and of the threat to deprive of life uh, if it was eaten had, uh, has had a great effect on the history of understanding for it has been read as if to mean that the slightest deviation from the slightest divine command, however devoid of perceptible, perceptible ethical basis uh, that the command might be, was and must be totally catas- must be okay was and must be a totally catastrophic sin which would estrange from god not only the immediate offender but also all future descendants and indeed all future humanity what is he saying about the command the divine command well it is irrational to begin with and the consequences are completely disproportionate to this to the, the no the the, the alleged crime, you know, that this, this, this simply cannot, this story cannot sustain the kind of weight that is placed on it in some readings uh, because the command wasn't a good command, the sheer irrationality of the command. And he goes on to say, it is God who is placed in a rather ambiguous light. He has made an ethically arbitrary prohibition and backed, up, backed it up with a threat to kill, which in the event... He does nothing to carry out. So God is really not coming out good here in in James Barr's reading. The person who comes out of this story with a slightly shaky moral record is not human beings, it's God. Why does he want to keep eternal life for himself and not let them share it? Even more seriously, why does he not want them to have knowledge of good and evil? So this is, you know, arbitrariness, severity, it's everything, and irrationality. There is nothing, you know, no great qualities to the command. I'd like us to look at the command uh, uh, sort of in a, from the point of view of Christian history. Gregory of Nyssa, he is the, uh, one of the Cappadocian fathers. There were three, uh, two brothers and, and, and their good friend. Who were the? These are the big names in Greek Orthodox, uh, in the Greek Orthodox paradigm. Gregory of Nyssa lived uh, in uh, in what is now Turkey, in he, in Antioch, and then later in 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 uh, Istanbul and Constantinople. But here is from a sermon he preached, and I just want to get the, sort of the the drift of what what is being how they they think about the divine command here. Uh, so Gregory of Nyssa died in 395, so his dates overlap with Augustine. Since then, the garden in that place is one. Why does the text say that each of the trees, tree of knowledge and the tree of life, is to be treated as something separate, and that both of them are at the center, when the account which tells us that the works of God are very good teaches that the killer tree is no part of God's planting? 
The what? The what? What is he saying? The killer tree. See, this is an extremely negative valorization, isn't it, of, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? This is a, a, extremely early on, an extremely serious indictment of the divine command. You know, that's what, is, that what you get from... from now, now, there is more to it, and he is up to a big project. He wants to solve the issue of good and evil, and he is trying hard here. But in order to do that, he is, he is characterizing the tree, you know, this command, as a negative, and there is a killer tree there. And the killer tree is not God's planting. It's not even, you know, shouldn't have been there in some ways. Well, you get the idea. Uh, if someone of you is interested, I have written an essay on this, uh, and I will share it with you, but you have to write, write to me and uh, uh, send an email to me, because I don't want to impose on you too much. Okay, now there are other ways of looking at this, and in the minutes that remain, let's look at some other ways of looking at the divine command. Uh, this person, Moberly, he is a very good re uh, reader of Old Testament texts. I always look, look you know, to see if he has published anything on Old Testament narratives, because he is a very, very interesting interpreter. He has written on this story that God's words had emphasized freedom, the man could eat of every tree with only one prohibited. So which is, which is more, prohibition or freedom? Which looms larger, prohibition or freedom? More freedom than prohibition. Yes, there, is, there seems to be a prohibition, but the emphasis is on freedom more than prohibition, would, it, would you say? So he is now saying something completely different from James Barr, or from Gregory of Nyssa, where one says that there is a completely irrational command, and another one says there was a killer tree, you know, and so on. So, you know, it's sort of hinting at, at, at intent here. So you could see the command as provision. You could see the command as something positive. God, you know, on the face of it, it looks like God is taking something away. But if you think about it like you just did, it wasn't like God took something away. It was like God added something. He added choice. You know, he could, you know, I've to, uh, experimented with students and groups. You know, you want to take away the tree of knowledge of good and evil and raise your hand. You know, how many of you want to take it away? Well, in the end, when people get to think about it, well, it's hard to disagree with God, so you don't take it away. But, <laughs> but you know, you get the idea. God is good in giving this commandment, for they are free to eat of it from any tree in the garden, including the tree of life, with one exception. But this one prohibition is also good, because God treats man as a free moral agent. That's basic sort of constitutive of reality here. So, and that tree, then the commandment, and that tree... You know, then it becomes a, a provision. It doesn't become a prohibition primarily. Even the pro prohibition then is in some ways a, pro a, a, a uh, provision provided that you do not do theologies of nope. Because those are that shallow. That is where you, don't, you only see the surface of things. You do not see. You do not look for, for, you know, for deeper, deeper intent, as it were. Command as promotion. Rather than serving as the means of their downfall, you know, the tree, uh, there, something has fallen out of my sentence there, I guess. The tree would have served as the means of their exaltation. 
to the righteousness, power, and glory God intended them to have. This person has written an article on that, on the tree of knowledge as a way for growth. You know, so it's quite closely related to the, to the other one on, on choice. And here then, this one, command as protection. The divine prohibition is for man's own protection. Uh, this person says, attention is at once directed to the quarter where the possibility of evil already lurked amidst the happiness of Eden. The preternatural natural subtlety of the serpent, but the serpent was wily. All, this, all these three people are saying that the command also has a protective intent because there is danger already. And that's back to, your, uh, to, to Bernie's point that, that, uh, that there is already evil in the world, as it were. There is a cosmic framework to it. They are provided for and at the same time protected from danger. So I think that's a huge, huge uh, part of it, and, and, and surely that changes the reading of these stories in a major way. It retains the emphasis on protection. There is a protective intent, but it also retains the, and uh, it also magnifies the issue of freedom, doesn't it? I mean, there is protection for human beings that Satan is not roaming in all the, everywhere, as it were, but there is also the fact that he is, in fact, given voice. You know, and that I think is a, is an element that is completely absent in 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 just about every theological paradigm you can think of, because there is you know why should he be allowed to speak? And the God is allowing this story to to sort of play out in such a such in many ways such a such terrible ways you could say. Now let me just say where I wanted to go with this and didn't get to it. So there is a theology of nope in some ways. You know, let me not be nasty to 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 uh, Ben Witherington. I don't want to. I, I just you know, I just thought that that the kind of the kind of negativity, the sort of un, uh, inability to see the divine gift of the Sabbath, and the construct of of commands. You know, and how how the the role of commands. I think that's problematic. I think that is setting up a theology that is problematic. Where I wanted to go with this is really to say that. I think that that current Seventh-day Adventist theology of the Sabbath also has elements of nope in it. And I think there is not, we cannot go anywhere with this unless we succeed in identifying the nope elements in current you know, Adventist Sabbath theology and find ways to, to exercise, uh, exercise the nope elements to see what sort of affirmations uh, the Sabbath really wants to, to have. So that's where, where I wanted to talk about more about the Sabbath and the world plot, but we will have to, to wait with that. So we'll have to pick up on this topic uh, when we resume.